this summer we did an interesting study on uh, how we can encourage uh, kids to grow up who grow up in the church to stay with the church after they turn 18 and move off into the into the real world. And one of the things they talked about was children's sermons and how this must be a dying thing. Mike, can you believe that, that that's a dying thing that that most churches don't do children's ministry? You realize that, that that only two in I think two in in ten pastors in America do a children's sermon every Sunday. I know it's the only part that I really get anything out of because the rest of it's just. <laughs> anyway, I probably shouldn't say that. That'd be bad. I mean, that's that's not good. Anyway, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of uh, Habakkuk. And yes, we're in the book of Habakkuk. And if you don't know where Habakkuk's at, I hope you have tabs in your Bible that will help guide you there, um, because that will give you the, clear, the closest uh, uh, approximation of where it's at. If you have an Al Weeks uh, 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 authorized study Bible, it's on page 1,446. So you get that, Mike? I know you got my Bible, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, it's in between uh, the prophet Nahum and Zephaniah um, in the Old Testament. He's considered a minor prophet, but there's nothing minor about this prophet. Um, he is asking questions that are deep and abiding, questions I think that are relevant to today. And, you know, in, in the case when we're doing Old Testament studies of, of uh, prophets, oftentimes we look at... Um, how the prophet is relevant to us today. And, and so, so a lot of times what we end up doing is we take the message that the prophet gave to a people a long time ago and try to uh, modernize it and bring it to us today. And you see that in a lot of, uh, of your current marketing. I, I'll never forget um, uh, some of the, the, the books and the little, little things that have been written. The Prayer of Jabez is probably my favorite. Um, and how a fellow wrote, I mean, got this prayer in the Old Testament. So an amazing prayer about enlarging tents and increasing sizes and things like that. And he wrote an entire series about it, made lots of money on it. And if you really just read the context of that, it's, it's, it doesn't really fit with what they're trying to ask for. It was definitely a prayer for a people at a time. Can we not latch on to the promises of God in the, in the Old Testament and, and bring them forward to the future? Yes, of course we can do that. Um, but the goal here is not to over-spiritualize the prophets, because when that happens, you have a tendency to branch into spiritual lies, and that's not something we want to do. But we do want to be able to take the message of the prophet that God gave Habakkuk and use it in our lives today and to see how we can, we can uh, find a path forward with this. Now, with Habakkuk's case, he's dealing with things that were relevant to them back 2,000 years ago and plus and relevant to us today. He's dealing with issues of, of politicalness. He's dealing with issues of, of social anxiety and frustration. He's dealing with money. He's dealing with, with evil that's present in the world. And he's asking God some serious questions. And last week was a tough, uh, was a tough week for me as I was studying and reading and preparing for this, uh, for this sermon. As I'm looking at this, um, this question that was, that was deep in the mind and the heart of Habakkuk. And the whole time I'm thinking that, that the most important thing to remember when reading any of the prophets is that the prophet, first and foremost, had to be relevant to the people he was originally speaking to. And so I tried to put myself in the place of the original audience, but every time I would do that, I just kept being brought to the current events that were happening in our day. And so I'm just going to read the first few verses um, 
in, uh, uh, in our study this morning. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1. Um, we're going to start off there. We're going to go through chapter 2. Um, we're going to start off in verse 12. As the prophet is now giving his second problem, his second question, if you will, to God. And he's, he's, he begins off just in, this, in a very matter-of-fact, frank way. And he just simply says, talking to God, he says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And here's the question. Two questions he asks. He says, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? It's a pretty powerful question. He continues on. He says, why have you made men like the, sea, like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook and drag them away with their nets and gather them together with their fishing nets. And therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their nets and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net continually and slay the nations without sparing? This is the question that's on the heart and mind of the prophet. You know, it's interesting when you start looking at prophets. I asked the kids this morning what a prophet was. I asked the kids again what a missionary, and, and we went into a slightly different direction with the kids. But that question of what is a prophet, we started to work out last week when we began to talk about Habakkuk. And prophets were were. A lot of times we think of prophets, we think of that, those sweeping things like Revelation or Daniel or Ezekiel. We think of those visions like we see in Isaiah or Jeremiah where you have these huge prognostications of the future and, and we want to write down what the prophet says because every, we know he's, he's speaking about the, the, the future. But the reality is that the majority of the ministry the prophets had was not a ministry of telling the future. It was what we would call forth telling. They were simply telling the word of God. They were, in many ways, the conscience of, of the people as they, as they began to reflect what, what God was telling them to the people and what the people were wanting to tell God uh, uh, back. And so there was this, this constant interplay. They were sort of in between as they shared the word of God to people that needed to know it the most. And I talked about Habakkuk, and if you read about Habakkuk, we don't really know much about him. All we know is that his name was Habakkuk. We know that, um, that he was a prophet, and there are very few prophets that were called prophets in the Old Testament, only two others besides Habakkuk. Other than that, we don't know where he came from. We don't know his father. We don't know his mother. We don't know anything else about him. But we know that he was a what I like to call a bare-knuckle preacher, an eyeball-to-eyeball preacher. He was the kind of guy, if you look at the way he's written here and just, just extrapolating from what he's read and, the, and the, I guess the forwardness, his ability to come into the presence of God and be able to look God in the eye and ask him these kind of deep and abiding questions in a time when you didn't do this with God. I mean, understand this, that during this time, there was no open altar where people could just come and freely ask questions of God. We have an amazing altar here, and at the end of the service, we're going to give people a time to come up and pray or, or to take care of any business they need to, but the reality is, this didn't exist in the Old Testament. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies behind a curtain. 
behind another place that was holy and set apart. And the only people that could go into that spot where God really manifested on a regular basis was somebody that had to spend hours and days preparing himself. And even then, there was a chance that if he stepped in that room, he'd be, stra- he'd be slain instantly. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like. I don't know if I could preach with a rope tied around my foot. I mean, think about it. That's exactly what the priest would do. The high priest would go in the Holy of Holies and he had a rope around his foot because if he said or did or wasn't pure in his heart's thoughts, motivation, God would kill him dead and they would have to yank his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. I mean, that's just weird. But I think if I did preach with like a rope around my foot, that would give a whole new you know, take on what I'm saying up here, right? Uh, maybe a little more authority than just Al Weeks, but I don't want to take authority that's not mine because it's not about me, it's about... Jesus Christ. And so when we're studying this and we're looking at this, we need to realize that that he was asking a question of a holy God that was really something that potentially could get him killed. Now, we are encouraged when we see this because God wanted us to know that he is available to us to ask some of these big questions. Look at the questions he's asking. Look at the questions he's asking. He says, are you not from everlasting? That seems like a basic question. He's basically flattering God. Are you not eternal and everlasting? Are you not forever and ever? And then he says a little, a few minutes, a few seconds later, we will not die. You may have appointed them as judge over us, and you may, you may have be using them to correct us, but we will not fully die. We can trust in you. And then he goes on to say, your eyes are pure. You can't look on wickedness. And then he throws that wise. Why do you do this, God? Why do you use evil men to chastise us? This is, this is pretty powerful. And I think when we think about this, my mind goes right back to what a prophet is and does. In Numbers chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 29, Moses is talking to the people and he sort of throws out this comment out there and he just says that he wished that all men were prophets. And I thought that was kind of interesting to think about it, that he wants all of us to be able to have the ability to stand in his presence, to be able to deliver the word of God to be able to have a moment where we can share the heart of God to people that need to hear it. And that's where we are now. He's standing there for the people, sharing this question. Why? But look at the other question he asked. Why are you silent when the wicked, wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? This is something that, that when, I, when you first look at that, that always comes back when we start asking ourselves, this is the old question of evil. Why is it that God allows evil to reign supreme uh, sometimes and for good people like Christians like us, for us not to do well? Uh, I had the opportunity to go and watch uh, the Nikiski Bulldogs play football this weekend in the rain. That was fun. I enjoyed that, and fortunately, with big umbrellas, we were able to do that. And, the, and I got there just in time. They had just scored their, their uh, first touchdown, and then they scored a second touchdown. And I was really excited about that. It was 12-0. Finally, we're going to beat Homer. Yes. And we all that live here in, in Kenai, we know what those Homer people are like, right? We, we know them. They're, they're liberal. They're, they're crazy. They're obviously not Christian. They don't love Jesus. And so because they're godless heathen pagans and they're coming into Kenai, in Nikiski, in the only Christian public school we have on the peninsula, uh, and you say, well, how is that a Christian? Because it's the only school out there that has more Christian teachers, I think, than anything else. It's amazing what they have out there, and I enjoy my time in Nikiski. And so I knew walking in there that God was going to give the victory to the the Nikiski Bulldogs, right? Yes, go Bulldogs. No, 
No. No, that, in fact, the, 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 the touchdown we saw as we walked into the stadium a little bit late um, was the last touchdown they had of the game, practically. And the game ended up being like 50-something to, to 12. Um, and that was a horrible score. And the whole time I'm thinking, God, why are you allowing those evil, godless Homerites to, to beat the godly Christians in McKiskey? That's just terrible, right? Well, I know I'm making fun of this, but this is a common question that we have. And we can spread this out in wider ways throughout our society. And I see it over and over again. And it frustrates me. And this is a question that is constantly coming back to me. Why do we allow this? Why does God allow this to happen? This seems to be like the heart of the problem. When you look at the outside world and, and, and the way the history has gone throughout all of time, it seems like that there is a disconnect between God and the world we live in between a holy and righteous God that can't endure the godless acts of, of ruthless oppressors and evil, but yet they're out there. Yet they seem to rise in prominence. Yet they seem to follow after their own desires and will. And nothing seems to prevent them. Habakkuk was dealing with this. I like what he starts off with, though, and I think he had it in the right track. He could have gone dark with this. He could have, he could have even taken a page from Job and, and just gotten really frustrated at the fact that, that God wasn't answering his prayers the way he wanted him to. But he simply started this off and he says, are you not from everlasting? And then he uses the word, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. That phrase that's there is actually the, the word Yahweh. Okay, That's the covenant name of God. It's not often that you see a prophet that invokes the covenant name of God in a, in a in discussion like this. The reason why he's invoking the covenant name is because he wants God to remember the covenant that he had with Israel, the covenant that was going to protect them and guide them. He's thinking in some way that he can flatter God and, and in many ways sort of, sort of move God where he wants him. And then he just simply says, we're surely not going to die. You have appointed them to judge, yes, and you are the rock, and you have established them to correct us. And so not only is he bringing the covenant name of God, but he also channels a little bit of Moses. Notice what he does there. He says, you are the rock, right? Now, if you're a biblical scholar and you like the life of Moses, like me, I love the life of Moses, then Nate, you'll know that Moses had this, had this thing with rocks, didn't he? And there was this moment there when the people were like, we're thirsty, we're going to die in the desert. And he's like, chill out, chill out, let me talk to God, right? He said that, those exact words. And well, sort of, like paraphrase. And then he goes up and, he, and he's told to strike the rock and the rock splits open. But that rock actually has a strong significance with Israel. And you see that rock popping up all the way through um, the Old Testament every once in a while. And it actually shows up in, in, in the New Testament. It talks about the fact that rock was actually um, Jesus. And when it starts giving the idea of the living water that Jesus is, it was hearkening all the way back to the days of Moses when that rock gave water out for the people of Israel. And it was known as living water, water of life, if you will. And so he's connecting to the Moses. He's connecting to, um, to all the covenant that God had laid out his people. And then he's flattering God a little bit because we know your eyes are too good to even look upon evil, O oh Lord. He says that, that you can't even look at wickedness. So he's throwing that out there because he wants them to see this, right? But he has, he has some frustration. 
See, we know he knows, and he is, and he has been. He spent his time reading Isaiah. He knew the contemporaries that were out there with Jeremiah and the other uh, the other prophets. He understood exactly the way God was. He knew that God was holy in a way that no other God in the, in that world was. In other nations, there were gods that were that had a, a level of holiness, sort of in their in their theology. They would say their god was holy in the sense that they were they were other than themselves, but they weren't necessarily good. In fact, most of the ancient gods in, the, in that day and age were were just uh, reflections of the evil of humanity on a bigger scale. If an individual was greedy, then his god was going to be even more greedy. If an individual was um, was, uh, was 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 evil in, in the way of taking lives or doing things like that, their god would be even more so. But we know that our god is holiness on a whole nother level. That he distanced himself from every bit of evil. In fact, God is so holy he can't be unholy even for a second. And that's basically what he's saying in those first few words. But then he gets to that second question. He says, why are you silent when those more righteous than us swallow us up? But then he's implying something there, right? He's making an extrapolation. He's saying that although we're not perfect here in Judah, we're better than them. And we don't do that as Christians, right? None of us sit in here today thinking to ourselves, oh, yes, we're, we're, we're on the same level of all those ungodly people that aren't in here on Sunday morning, right? Yeah, all those people that chose to sleep in and not come to church and not give their life to Christ, we're not any better than them, right? We all think that, right? Because that's the right way to think. No, of course not. No. And there's a piece in us and every one of us that, that knows that we have something that they don't and that knowing that we have something they don't automatically sometimes can lead us to be a little bit superior to the world around us. And that's not where God wants us to be because the reality is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none that are righteous. And so when he says that they are that, that, that they're swallowing up us that are more righteous than they, he didn't go so far as to say we are righteous. He just says we're better than they are. That's sort of like putting this whole thing in a nice, easy box. The reality is that the Israelites weren't more righteous, really, than the Chaldeans. They were just a different level of issues, different level of problems. And I think that's something that is a challenge for all of us. As we look at this and we begin to look at who these Chaldeans are, in verses 15 through 17, the prophet gives us a description of who these people are. And then in verse... One, chapter two, the prophet does his best Jonah, right? See, he's, he's, he's sort of, he is, he's pulling out the Jonah card, right? And I think when a, pre, when a, when a, when a prophet can, can connect not only to Isaiah, not only to Moses, not only to Jeremiah, but then pull out the Jonah card, I mean, he's like, a, he's like in another level right now. I mean, how he did this, I don't know. Look what he says. He goes, it's, it, you, I, don't, I get the sense, I don't know about you guys, but I get the sense when I read this that, that the prophet is, is about ready to write this last bit, and I, I just get him, like, He's crossing his arms, right? And he's just like, he's sitting down wherever he's at, and he's looking up at God, and he goes, okay, I'm going to wait right here until you do what I ask you to do. Look what he says. I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch and see what he will speak to me, and then how I may reply when I am reproved. He knows that God is going to instruct him. He recognizes that, but he's going to sit right there and he's not going to move. He's going to ask and demand that God give him what he wants, an answer. 
You know, this is, I don't know about you guys, but I've read bits and pieces of the Old Testament, right? And we've known other men that have made that similar statement before God. It doesn't always end well for them. You would think that if he's going to channel the Jonah card, he would read the end of Jonah and realize that didn't work out so well with Jonah. Jonah was frustrated. There was a tension at the end of that book that never got resolved. But I think he's at a point now where he just doesn't want to see his people get destroyed, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And then the Lord answers. Look what he says. He says, all right, all right. You want an answer? I'll give you an answer. Just like he said with Job, basically gird up your loins, buddy, because you're about to be hit with an answer. He says, the Lord answered me and said, record this vision, write it down on tablets, so the one that reads it may run. It's interesting, when, when you look at that in the Hebrew, what it really means is, I want you to write it so easy that anyone can read it at a glance and understand it instantly. That's what that word, read it on a, and, and may run, uh, means. And so he wants something that's easy to understand so that anyone can get this. And he says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time, and it hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. This message, this vision, and it, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, and it will not delay. And then he gets into his frustrations. God begins to lay it out. He says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous will live by faith. I want to stop there for a second because you need to understand something. That when we start looking at verse 4 through about verse 8, our first idea is, oh, he's talking about the Chaldeans. He's dealing with the individuals that are going to come in and how he's going to deal with the bad people eventually, right? That's what we really want in this story. We want the king to come in and deal justice rightly to those that deserve justice. And so we're waiting for that to happen in this book. We're waiting for God to say, I hear your request. It's going to get tough. I'm going to chasten you, but then I'm going to take care of the Chaldeans, right? I'm going to handle them in a way that they've never been handled before, and they're going to be left just utterly devastated that's kind of what the prophet wants he says is there any silver lining in this but that's not what's happening here actually the reality is in the next few verses god is laying out his case for judah and so when we're reading about this in judah i think we need to ask ourselves how do we fit in this look what it says behold as for the proud one his soul is not right within him the words there literally mean twisted up that's weird. He says, the proud one, I don't like. Look what it says, the next says, but the righteous one will live by faith. That particular passage may sound familiar to you. In fact, it's used three times in the New Testament. It's mentioned in the book of Romans, chapter 1. It's mentioned in Galatians, chapter 3. And it's restated in a different way in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read that to you just now because I want you guys to get this. Um, you can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read it out. The writer of Hebrews says, For yet a little while the coming one will come with, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's not exactly what Habakkuk is saying. It actually takes the verse, flips it up on its end, and gives a different connotation. So the writer of Hebrews is not giving us a word-for-word -word translation. He's giving us a modern, contemporary version of what this verse means to the heart of God. And we know that the New Testament is as inspired as the Old Testament. We know the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, was inspired by God. We know that it would not be included in our scripture if it were not God-breathed for us. So when God breathes this and rewrites his 
book, his passage in Habakkuk, we should take note. He says, my righteous one shall live by faith. We got that. We can live by faith. We understand that. But then he goes a step further and says, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, as Baptists, we don't like that verse. Because as Baptists, we stand on the one, the one thing we stand on above all else is the, is the idea of eternal, eternal security, the idea of once saved, always saved. This is an argument that lots of people have. And I know some of you may not be 100% where I'm at with this. But this is a question that we need to ask ourselves because the idea here is that the prophet is saying that uh, in Hebrews, as well as sort of giving us the idea here, that a proud man that depends upon his own self is not right with God. And that if he's true, if a person is truly righteous and they will live by faith or live in faithfulness, that's what the word really means, live in faithfulness, then it's an idea that this is a lifestyle choice that we make all the way through our life. And there are those that will fall away. And we need to ask ourselves, was salvation really theirs? And so when we look at these passages and we start asking ourselves, where are we in this? How can we take something out of this? And I look at the list of frustrations that God has. He talks about the pride. He talks about a haughty spirit. He talks somebody that's greedy and selfish. He talks about people that, that seek to gather things that aren't theirs. He talks about people that are mockers. These are the things that frustrate him the most, but I think ultimately it comes back to the sin of idolatry. I think that's the big sin that all of us really deal with. Idolatry is the key. Because anytime we put something above God, before God, we are we're perpetrating idolatry. And that's something God does not want. I believe 100% that when God saves a human being, he saves them forever. But I also know there are people out there that may have said a prayer, that may have done something because somebody else wanted them to, but they never really made a connection to God. They never really turned their heart towards Jesus. And they've never really worked out their fear, their, their salvation with fear and trembling, as my brother said in the back earlier. This is something that all of us have to deal with. I've never been one to put an age on salvation. And I think all of us need to focus on what God has called us to do. And we need to ask ourselves, where are we? Are we truly following God the way we're supposed to? The last part of this, uh, of this chapter deals with what I like to call the woes, the five woes of Habakkuk. I'm not going to read them to you, but I want you to look at them. You see them in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 12. And then he finishes up in verse four, uh, verse 15 and then verse 19. And all these woes sort of lay credence to all the frustrations that God has for the current church of the day. And I think that many of those woes you'll find in our churches as well. Because we tend to focus way too much on the things that we have, on our ability to be able to accomplish things without God's power, and we rest too much in our own authority and not enough in God's. That's where we are most of the time. The final verse in chapter 2, God sort of sets it all into perspective. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God's done answering questions. He's done dealing with this question of the problem of evil and good. If you don't know God, then you don't understand how good he really is. 
If you know him, then you have to have faith that he is going to keep you close to him no matter what. And his goodness is going to reign supreme. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's something that we can take to heart and be silent in front of the Lord. This is the questions that we have. When we have questions, we need to go before the Lord and ask him. And then when he gives us an answer, especially a tough one like this, we need to accept it. You know, God never actually deals with the answer of Habakkuk's claim. He never actually said, this is why I'm using the Chaldeans. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to rescue some of you. This is how I'm going to to bring salvation to the nation. This is how I'm going to bring out my Messiah in the end. He doesn't explain any of that. And I often wonder why he didn't do that. I mean, here is Habakkuk, a holy guy of God. He's a fellow that was, that was laying out his heart before the Lord. He was serving the capacity. He was giving what he could to the, uh, to the Father. The Father was, was taking a moment to answer his question, which he normally didn't do, as far as we know, in regular time back then. And so you would think that he would give him a better answer than this. And the only thing I can come up with is there are times that when my child, when he was little and young, would come up to me and ask me something, and I would say, no, you can't have that. I didn't get into a long discourse of why it's bad for him, how it's going to hurt him or her, how it's going to cause them to go down a life of misery and destruction and irritation, how giving them this candy bar today is going to set them down that road of addiction to sugar. Sugar. Yeah. And other problems. I didn't do that to my kids. I just accepted the fact that they were children and they didn't understand my plan and that I couldn't explain it in a way they could understand and they just simply need to be quiet Listen to what I tell them to do and do it. And I think that's part of what God is telling us now. I know in our world today, we're struggling. There's a lot of political issues, hot buttons are today. And I look at the the prophets of the Old Testament. Those guys in the Old Testament, they kept abreast of the times. The prophets knew what was happening. I've taken a sabbatical from the news because the news irritates me. The last few times that I've watched the news, I just get more and more mad at the television, at the newscasters, at the frustration of the politicians. And and I think to myself, I wish I could just live in a place where I didn't have to deal with any of that garbage. But the reality is God has not saw fit to put me on a deserted island with all the food that I can eat and a life of luxury beyond that. That would be nice, wouldn't it? I think it would be awesome. Eric, if I had an island, would you come and hang out with me? Would that be good? You'd never leave. Well, the problem is as soon as you got there, there'd be problems. I would have to leave, right? Because, you know, that's right. It would not be good. It would not be a good place. You know, that's a problem. Anytime you add one more person to your your utopia, it's no longer a utopia because we're broken and messed up people. The reality is is that we live in this world. You know, I was really encouraged when I heard that my brother Jesse was wanting to run. And I know some of you are saying, well, isn't that that horrible? You only have the one candidate? You know, I I would be overjoyed if every single candidate that wanted to run for office in and around our community came here to our congregation, shared their testimony, shared their vision, and allowed us as a congregation to pray over them. Imagine what it would be like if our politicians said, I'm going to submit myself to the authority of God. And as you, the children of God living in this community, I want you to hold me responsible. Because here's the thing is, I asked Jesse to come. He didn't realize this. I got you trapped, brother. You know, you could leave. You could. Might tackle you on the way out. I don't know if that would work real well. You're pretty tall. But the thing is, we're going to pray over you, right? And, and what that means is that we're praying over you, that God is going to watch over you. He's going to protect you. He's going to guide you. And then what, you know what we're going to do? We're going to watch you. And we're going to make sure that your decisions and your voting and the things that you do are in line with what you've said to us here because that's how we're going to hold you accountable. We should do that with every single politician. 
How many times do we see a politician who gets up there and they just start talking? And, they, and we had the philosophy like my father always did. Whenever they saw a, a politician speaking, he would just instantly say, oh, there goes a guy that's lying. How do you know he's lying? Well, his lips are moving, right? We know that. And, but how many times do we actually hold our politicians accountable? If you say you're going to do X and you do Y, Z and everything else, but you don't even look at X, then that's not right. We need to hold our leaders accountable, every one of them. And if they're not willing to do what we want them to do, then we need to make sure legally we don't let them do it again. This is part of what we're called to do. We live in this community. We have an opportunity to make a change. We may not be able to change Washington. We may not be able to change the world. I don't even know, Eric, if we can change Alaska as a state, right? I mean, there's a lot of big problems, and I know we all have the answers, and we can solve them in like 10 minutes at men's breakfast, which we're starting up in a week, you know, not this Monday, the next Monday, and we solve a lot of problems in men's breakfast. If, if the governor would come to our men's breakfast, he would come away empowered with all the answers he needs. I know this, right? But the reality is, the governor's not coming to our men's breakfast. He's not getting the wisdom that we have. And it's his loss, right? We know that. He's also not getting good breakfast that's cooked by me because, you know, well, he's getting breakfast cooked by me. I don't know if it's good. But the point is, he's not coming. We may not be able to affect the entire state, but I know we can affect Kenai. I know we can affect Nikiski. I know that we can influence Soldatna. And I know that we can begin to build something here that is huge and amazing. And I want to encourage you guys to think about this. This is what the prophet is wanting us to do. He wants us to know that God is in his temple. Everything is in control. He is where he needs to be. He's sovereign over the whole earth. And the whole earth just needs to sit back and relax. Now, I want to end the message today not in a typical way. I mean, we are going to open up the altar, and I guarantee you, if you have any issues or frustrations, we need you to come. But I want to end the sermon today not with Al Weeks' words, but with God's words. So I want you, if you will, turn with me back a few pages to the book of Psalms. Since the prophet is, 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 is channeling Psalms 11, let's look at what Psalms 11 actually says. And I'm going to read this, and after I'm done reading this, I'm going to go right into prayer. I'm going to ask our praise team to come up. And if there's anything you need, I want you to come down front. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, if you want to get that taken care of, you can come down front this morning. If you have any other problems, frustrations, irritations, the Holy Spirit will be here, and I know that he will deal with you as he sees fit. But for the rest of us, I just want the words from God's psalmist, David, a man after his own heart, to sort of wash over our souls for a minute and take us where he wants us to go. So I'm just going to read the whole psalm to you. Psalm 11, starting in the first verse, from the pen of David himself. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and the burning wind will be a portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. 
the upright will behold his face. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. As we come to the end of this message time, Lord, I know that we've only scratched the surface of this argument and this frustration. Father, we know that we'll never fully answer the question of, of this problem of evil, not until we step into glory and we fully perceive your plan from beginning to end. Father, we know that you are the God of all time, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Father, we know not only are you an all-powerful, almighty God capable of doing anything and everything, that you also love each and every one of us in a very intimate and special way. And Father, just like you took time with Habakkuk and shared your heart as best that you could, Father, we thank you when you share your heart with us. Father, we ask that you continue to open up your heart to us through your word, that you allow us as Baptists to be people of the book, that we might dive deeply into your word and go as deep as we possibly can to understand your love, your mercy, and your grace on a level we've never accepted or understood before. Father, we know that as we seek to honor you and serve you, there are going to be challenges. Darkness will come up. But Father, we're comforted by the fact that we know that you are in your holy temple. You are on your throne. You are in charge. Father, we ask that in this time of, of turmoil in our state, in our nation, in our, world, in our world today, that you'll give us a sense of peace, a peace that goes beyond any possible understanding, that we might truly be able to share this hope and this peace with those that need it most. And Father, I ask that you'll give us an opportunity as your servants this week to share our faith and our hope with someone or many someones as we encounter during the week. And Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, please don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. As we open up the altar and we ask those that need to come to come, Father, we thank you and we ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.